This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL. In Concord, New Hampshire, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we're really happy today to welcome as our special guest, Kylie Lamb. Kylie is a graduate of Dartmouth College. She's a digital strategist with 10 years plus of experience in political organizing, training, and grassroots activism. She's worked on campaigns for Congress, the U.S. Senate, she worked on women's issues for the Obama 2012 campaign. Um, she's managed and directed digital campaigns for Credo Mobile, Move On, Ultraviolet, and she is currently the senior U.S. campaigner at Mozilla. Kylie Lamb, welcome to Off the Record. Hi, thanks for having me. So, so Mozilla, I use Firefox. I like Firefox. I'm a fan of Mozilla. Um, but but what does your job involve and why does Mozilla need a campaigner? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, one of the things that's unique about Mozilla is that we are a not-for-profit uh, tech organization. And so, you know, the products can actually be mission-driven. So Firefox is a great privacy-focused alternative to some of the other browsers out there. Um, but I work more specifically on some of our advocacy campaigns around just making the internet better on the whole. Uh, so when it comes to issues of privacy and security, but also when it comes to the intersection of how technology might be affecting democratic societies and those institutions that have been longstanding and how tech suddenly is having an impact on them. So your current campaign uh, involves Facebook and Twitter. What's going on with Facebook and Twitter? Why is Mozilla involved? And what's the problem? Well, there is a, there's a lot of problems. I don't know if anyone, um, I mean, I'm sure people have been following a lot of the concerns about ways that platforms like Facebook and Twitter and other big social media platforms have been, you know, um, manipulated and otherwise used uh, to try to affect election outcomes. Um, it, we've seen it with misinformation around COVID and just general, I would say, malicious activity can happen on these platforms. And, you know, for the most part, they have been focusing on ways that they can work to mitigate some of this malicious behavior. And we identified two very big in our minds, um, algorithmic recommendation engines that are driving people to see some of this misinformation and potentially elevating it in the, the national dialogue. Uh, so for example, with Twitter trending topics uh, or Twitter trends, uh, some things that might not have gotten the eyeballs that they would have gotten otherwise uh, suddenly became a hot topic. Um, one such example being 
back in, I think it was September, maybe it's actually late August, uh, a report about uh, mortality in COVID got taken out of context and suddenly there's misinformation trending, not just on Twitter, but across platforms uh, that gives a completely false uh, sense of how lethal COVID actually could be. So Kylie, in the last week, um, we've seen the topic that you've been focusing on play out in real time and in really a spectacular fashion with the story in the New York Post. And um, there's been a lot of coverage about the different ways that the social media platforms handled that particular story, which I myself don't want to amplify too much. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of evidence that it was an intentional piece of Russian disinformation uh, aimed at the Biden campaign. So it seems from the reporting that Facebook took a kind of moderate approach. Twitter was initially very aggressive in trying to clamp down circulation of that particular story and then took a little bit of a step back. What did you make of the responses of the various social media platforms? Do you think they did enough and what should they have done better? I, well, great question. And it was, uh, I, I'm actually taking this course right now that's been a very interesting, illuminating uh, continuing studies course with Stanford and some of the top folks who are thinking about this. And this news broke about five minutes before our, our online class started last night. And so it was interesting to, to hear the take, the, you know, the, the very quick take of uh, folks who've been focusing quite a bit on such uh, misinformation and disinformation. But, um, you know, I think when it comes to how platforms can anticipate types of, um, I would say coordinated and authentic behavior. So for example, um, you know, I think what happened, what the news about the Iranian influence campaign that broke yesterday, you know, that was, as far as I know, not actually something that happened on the platforms. So it was actual mail pieces, I think, and emails that were sent. Um, and so the way that the platforms are handling that, I would say, is, has actually been fairly good because they're able to label it as misinformation. But we always, we, we walk this line of if you label something as misinformation or if you call attention to it, such as in the case of the New York Post story last week, um, that, it, you know, it's possible that Twitter's response to that and, and the way that they pulled out the hacked news policy without much context, which they have since said was a mistake that they didn't give context around that. And then they've also since changed that policy. And, and that's the other big thing that you'll see is in the recent weeks, and we just put out this platform tracker that it, we started doing the research you know, six or seven weeks ago. And every single week, there's been a new update. All of six of the platforms that we looked at have had an update in the past two weeks. And a lot of this is just happening in real time because you can't necessarily anticipate what the scenario is that you should have a policy in place for and whether that policy that you do have in place, for example, of hacked materials actually makes sense in the case that you're then presented. And so I think that, you know, Twitter had to make an adjustment to some extent on the fly. And that's hard to do, particularly when you're operating in a 24 hour news environment to get it right. And so, you know, I think maybe it wasn't the best way to handle it. And at the same time, I don't necessarily know how they could have handled it better. So, so have there been substantial changes since 2016 in the way Facebook and Twitter 
uh, deal with uh, disinformation uh, because a lot of our listening audience and the general public may have some vague idea of, uh, of, of how this all works or doesn't work and how these platforms are or are not used. And what we have seen is um, it seems real reluctance on the part of the CEOs who've come before Congress to fess up uh, and be honest about the ways in which either their platforms have been used or the blind eye that they may be turning to disinformation. So have there been substantial changes to 2016? And are you trying to push uh, for other substantial changes? Are you pushing for regulation of these platforms? Yes, well, I think when it comes to regulation, that's pretty much most civil society groups are aligned that that has to be the solution here because we're seeing completely inconsistent. And, uh, you know, I think, for example, Facebook and Twitter and Google have these huge teams and we were able to meet with them in doing this research on, on this tracker uh, to learn more about their thinking. And they're able to dedicate massive resources to getting this right. Um, but you have other smaller platforms, newer platforms who don't have those resources and uh, aren't necessarily able to, you know, learn from past mistakes to, to improve policies. And so I think regulation across the board is, is really needed. Um, but with respect to what's changed since 2016, I will give credit here to uh, two of the guest uh, lecturers in that course that I just mentioned last night. Um, we had Camille Francois, who's actually a Mozilla Fellow or former Mozilla Fellow, and um, Alex Stamos. And they were discussing that to some extent, what happened in 2016 has almost been a distraction from what we're seeing right now because so much of what we focused on with the fallout of 2016 has been foreign interfe interference campaigns. And, um, you know, of course, that's also the intersection of US election law where we, we don't allow foreign actors from getting involved in our elections. And so there is a legal precedent there. But when it comes to media manipulation and inauthentic activity that's not in fact foreign influence, um, but perhaps, you know, somebody putting out either misinformation that they didn't actually intend to be false or buying into disinformation and spreading it, that that's almost become um, more of a norm on social. And it's something the platforms have tried to address, but haven't necessarily been able to hit that bar um, to get it right. Um, and in particular, when it comes to almost the ubiquity of mis and disinformation, that that has sown distrust, not just in what people are seeing online, but perhaps in what they might be hearing or seeing from sources that should be trusted. So I know we've only got about a minute or two left and uh, you've got a chock full work schedule. So thank you for carving out the time for us. Is there anything that you would advise our listeners who are consumers and participants in social media that they can do on their end um, to try and be better consumers of information on social media platforms to spot misinformation, disinformation, manipulated or mistaken information um, and to act more responsibly with it? Sure. Well, Mozilla has a few resources out. We have a Misinfo Monday series, uh, which a few of those posts from previous Mondays have detailed steps that you can take as an individual. And a bunch of our partners do as well. Access Now just put out one 
And I think there's a lot of great resources out there. I won't go through all those steps on here, but they, they are out there. Um, but I, I really do want to emphasize this isn't an individual people problem. This is a systemic problem, and we need to be looking for systemic solutions. So um, in terms of the systemic solutions, your current campaign um, involves the two algorithmic recommendation um, uh, algorithms that, that are being used to spread uh, disinformation. I understand that you uh, sent Facebook and Twitter a petition signed by lots and lots of people. Is that true? We sent uh, Facebook and Twitter a joint letter that was signed by over 6,000 internet users. We also have campaigns to each individually. And um, I think something like 33,000 people have signed the petition to Facebook, for example, um, which is to stop Facebook uh, group recommendations. Uh, which is something they did for health groups because they recognized that health misinformation was spreading so rap rapidly in health groups specifically. And so we're calling for them to take that change that they made to health groups only and, and make it through election results being certified across the board. So in the remaining run-up to the presidential election, we are, we are, I don't know, 11 or 12 days away from a very consequential election. I know you said that these are systemic issues that need to be resolved by the platforms, but in those 11 or 12 days, when we may be seeing an amplification of disinformation, I mean, the FBI and the Director of National Intelligence were gave a very odd uh, press briefing uh, last night to talk about the, 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 uh, uh, the email disinformation campaign. What, what should our people be looking for? What should our listeners be looking for and listening, especially if they're on Twitter and Facebook? How, how, what, what are the signals that tell them, beware, this is suspicious? Uh, well, I think just in general, checking trusted sources, um, you can do a reverse search for something um, and taking a step back if it feels like it's pulling at you emotionally, because um, that tends to be you know, some a way for them to engage. Uh, so just take a step back, check your sources. Um, you know, if, if it's somebody who you know who shared it, check in with them. And I think when it comes to checking sources, um, there's, you know, some, some really great resources out there. I wouldn't necessarily say that you can just trust that check mark. Um, the verification doesn't, doesn't automatically make the person who's sharing the information a trusted source. Folks, this is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL. We've been talking with Kylie Lamb, senior U.S. campaigner at Mozilla. Uh, Kylie has taken us deep down the rabbit hole of dis and misinformation and what's going on. It's a huge subject. Kylie, you have a, a big job and we're glad you're doing it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hose here on WKXL podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. 
And Matt Robeson, it's you and me. Um, we've just had a really fascinating segment with Kylie Lamb, senior U.S. campaigner at Mozilla, who is currently involved in a campaign uh, to uh, try to persuade Facebook and Twitter to change their algorithmic recommendation programs that apparently automatically um, uh, amplify dis and misinformation and allow it to be used across uh, many different platforms. I mean, the subject of disinformation and misinformation is, is really hot given what just happened with the FBI and the Director of National Intelligence going on national TV, giving a vague press briefing no questions were asked, no, no, no specifics were given, but clearly uh, talking about uh, suspicious emails, allegedly from Proud Boys to Democrats, uh, threatening Democrats not to, to, to vote for Donald Trump or else. Um, uh, and apparently uh, this was identified as Iranian, um, and perhaps Russian disinformation campaign. Uh, Chuck Schumer, um, the Democratic uh, leader uh, in the Senate, cast some shade on that um, by intimating, without revealing any classified information, that in his uh, classified briefings, uh, that there was not uh, this kind of, of um, particularity about the motivation behind the Iranian disinformation campaign. And I don't know, maybe you know, because you're the smart guy um, and I'm just a mouthpiece, but maybe you can figure out why, what, what, what would the Iranians have to gain by threatening Democrats as the Proud Boys to, to vote for Donald Trump or else? I mean, what do you make of this? You know, I think one of the challenges that Kylie did a very good job of outlining in the last segment is that what we're seeing here is not necessarily a hacking of our social media platforms, but as our guest from months ago, Justin Levitt, who's an expert um, on uh, the legal ramifications of uh, uh, these kinds of uh, misinformation campaigns, pointed out what we're seeing hacked is not social media, but us but our brains. And you know, to your question, it seems like the most likely motivation in all of this is creating, sowing mistrust in our institutions, in our government, in our election systems, and in the media and social media platforms uh, overall. And in fact, that's a lot of what we saw in the fallout from the New York Post story, which again, I don't want to amplify because it is a clear piece of Russian disinformation that's been introduced into our consciousness intentionally to mess with us. But, you know, if you look at the reaction of Twitter, which very aggressively tried to slow down the spread of that story on its platform and then had to backtrack a little bit and, um, you know, it, allow it to, to circulate a little bit more, what you could see was that the very act, as Kylie was laying out, of clamping down created a backlash. It created um, the kind of uh, uh, incendiary spark um, for the right that 
uh, they were seeking. And it, you know, it's interesting. I would just connect it to a piece of research that was written up in uh, the Atlantic this week by Sarah Longwell, uh, really a fascinating article uh, that I commend to everybody. She conducted about 50 focus groups over the last year um, with Trump supporters, some of whom have flipped to Biden, some of whom are sticking with him, and uh, in the last year, predominantly with women. And one of the things that they say is that a meaningful number of these voters are, in her words, clear-eyed about Trump and his failures. And they think he is doing a bad job. As a matter of fact, we heard from Josh Schwerin, our guest two weeks ago, that one third of voters in 2016 actually thought Donald Trump was unfit to be president. But in these focus groups, these Republican women are saying that they're going to stick with Trump because they believe Democrats are worse and most important, the media aren't to be trusted. So, you know, I, I think the motivation here of China, Iran, Russia is, yes, they may want to support Trump in some cases, especially Russia, we know that. But most important to them is just making us distrust each other, distrust our sources of information, um, inflame anger at the media, um, and generally mess with our heads. That's what I'm seeing. Well, look, so here's what, here's what we, we, we know. Um, in the wake of the emails that were sent to Democrats, both um, the Lincoln Project, for example, a group of what we'll call Republicans of conscience who uh, want to uh, see Trump defeated, uh, Republicans who want to see Trump repeated, uh, defeated, um, tweeted and retweeted the um, information they had at the time that the Proud Boys, that group that Donald Trump told to stand back and stand by, a right-wing uh, kind of militia group, um, they, they tweeted out that the Proud Boys had been trying to intimidate Democrats. And apparently there were thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets of that misinformation. Uh, and that may have been one of the reasons that the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, an FBI director took to uh, national television to give this brief uh, press briefing saying that it was Iran and perhaps Russia uh, behind it. So mission accomplished for Iran, irrespective of, of what, whether, you know, clear, it, it, assuming that we now know it wasn't the Proud Boys who sent the emails and the Proud Boys denied sending the emails. Iran created, well, at least 24 hours worth of chaos um, around uh, our election process, um, picking up on the incitement to uh, interfere with the process that the president had already begun very effectively because he is, as we know, the master of the Twitter sphere. But I would say, you know, if I if this was a, a baseball scorecard, I'd say I ran one uh, U.S. nothing uh, in the first inning in terms of creating havoc and concern among the electorate. Well, and I would, I would. Can I, can I offer a slight, of, as you used to say on the floor of the House of Representatives, a friendly amendment to that? I would say they hit a base hit single. Right. Like, 
I'm not sure that they actually scored. And the only reason I say that is that you're not seeing a lot of evidence in polling, um, in in voting patterns that this is actually making a dent. So um, mess with our heads, yes. You know, connecting, making solid contact with the ball, yes. Um, I, I think the jury's out on whether it's actually going to affect anything, but go on. So I, I was going to switch to your, I, I won't argue with you. You know, uh, I could argue with you, but I won't argue with you. I, I think that we don't know what the full residual effect of the whole little bit of canard is, whether or no, not that's it true. really, that's whether, true. whether it really will affect people, whether Democrats are listening. And in the bottom line is that it's hard to know who to believe. And that may be the brilliant masterstroke of these foreign influencers. In an era when truth has been subverted in the name of authoritarianism by the president himself, when you don't know who to believe anymore, when the president is going after both Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, and 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 his attorney general Barr for not being aggressive enough in rounding up his political enemies. Uh, when truth has been a casualty of this presidency, furthering mistruth um, is is just deepens the sense of chaos and despair and inability to separate fact from fiction. Uh, among the electorate. Now, that said, and returning to your point about Republicans who may be sticking with the president anyway, um, Pego recently, my, my, my spouse recently had a, a conversation uh, with a neighbor who is a, a, a woman for Trump. She supported him in 2016 and she is supporting him again. And what she said to Pego basically was, well, he's a pig. I know he's a pig, but uh, I think he's done, uh, we didn't hire him uh, for, his, for his social niceties. We hired him because uh, he would uh, keep America strong and she likes what he's done at the border. She said, my parents were immigrants from uh, Canada, and they came here legally, and those folks on the southern border who are trying to cross illegally uh, need to be stopped, and he's done that. And he's been good for the economy, she said. Um, he's been very successful. The stock market is up, she said. So that what is interesting to me is the way people seem to be cutting through the lies and the behavior of the president is by hanging on to, uh, I, and without arguing the points, hanging on to the talking points that Trump has spun out there. I'm good for the economy. I'm tough on immigration. I'm making America strong again. And I'm, oh, and the other thing she said was, and he's not a politician. He's not He's not one of these politicians. He's authentic. He's a businessman. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, the, the folks are, are buying that. And whatever the blizzard of lies and misinformation is, that for a significant number of people 
um, is what counts. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, th this is off misquoted, but the plural of anecdote is data. And um, I, do, I think that there's some value in talking to your neighbors and, um, you know, the, the ones who disagree with you and getting to get a sense of really, truly, where are people's heads at? And uh, I've had a lot of these conversations uh, in recent weeks, and a lot of them do go along the lines of what you hear, uh, for example, in the Sarah Longwell article from focus groups, right? It, there's a lot of this sense of don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And the what is in these Trump voters' heads, for the most part, is a comparison. They even go through one Republican friend of mine, put it to me like this, in this person's head, say it's a he, he has decided that he is going to rationally vote for Joe Biden. But he's kind of rooting for Trump because every time the subject of the media, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Nancy Pelosi, or the general prospect of socialism is raised, he gets enraged. And that is consistent with what we're seeing in research at scale. So, you know, like, again, I, I mean, I, I neither want to over tilt on the plural of anecdote, nor dismiss it. I, I think that there is a reality to that. And what we're seeing with misinformation and disinformation campaigns is it feeds, that is the object, is to feed exactly into that sense. It's an anti-elitism, anti-media, and anti-democratic leadership sense that turns the election as much as possible into a polarized affair where you may see the reality of and hate Donald Trump, but you hate the other side more. And that's certainly what happened in 2016, where people who hated both Clinton and Trump broke toward Trump by 17 percentage points. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire. We're a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. We will be back after this word from the good folks who keep this station humming along. So don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, where you can find us day or night anywhere on the planet. Well, Matt, we've uh, we, we've delved into the minds of Republican voters, and we've talked a little bit about misinformation. What what are you hearing from your professional political sources on? on the polling front, what what's going on? Well, you know, I think there's a kind of um, uh, paranoid uh, uh, sense, uh, current running through uh, Democrats. And I mean, this is not, I'm not breaking news here, right? Like, I think uh, if you're listening to this and you, and you happen to be voting for Biden, you're probably feeling this, so I don't need to tell you. Um, but look, I, I, I mean, I think everyone is kind of eyeing the numbers nervously. And if you take a close look at them, you see what I mean, you know, at a high level, the polling and the modeling and the forecasting has been going great for Biden, um, you know, who's up with a almost 11 point lead um, and uh, seems to be in a, in a very strong position. We've talked about this with with Biden's lead pollster, John Anzalone, uh, Anzalone in recent weeks. But 
I think what keeps Democrats nervous is if you look, if this is a race to 270 electoral votes, which it is technically, and you look at the states that kind of form the base of that tower, they, they you know, they, they break strongly to Biden. Um, but then as you get right toward the apex of it, toward getting him over the line, things begin to get a little bit dicier. So his lead in the tipping point states that put him over the top is only 2.2%. And if you take out Pennsylvania, which is relatively stronger and which is the state currently projected to be the tipping point, his lead is currently only 1.7%. So that is pretty razor thin. Now, the good news is um, there's a bunch of states that kind of fall into this category of they could put them over the top. There's Georgia, there's North Carolina, there's Arizona, there's Florida. And the, there are those two congressional districts in Maine and Nebraska that um, split out um, their, their electoral votes. So he does have multiple pathways, but if you know that results between those states do tend to correlate and you think that there's as much as a two to three point error possible, which by the way is the historic average of how much the polls are off from the final result, you can see why Democrats start to get a little bit itchy. That's what I'm hearing. What are you hearing? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, you're much more in touch with um, all the deep, the, the deep throats of the political world um, in terms of what's out there. I, Democrats always are nervous and, and, and with good reason. Here in New Hampshire, uh, Vice President Pence came for a visit. Uh, we've just been advised that uh, the president himself is coming back to New Hampshire. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe he's given up on any of the big states that really, that really are in play. And uh, he figures he'd better try to do what he can to get our pitiful few electoral votes. But, you know, so I, I, I just, here's, I, I want to go to a fun subject. And, and this is a little bit of fun because it's, I, I, I occasionally make fun of people and it's all, it's all in good fun. But one of the, one of the really strange, strange characters in American politics to me is Rudy Giuliani. Because Rudy, the mayor of New York City, who, who touted himself as such a hero around 9-11 has become, it seems, one of Donald Trump's primary uh, purveyors, primary objects of the affections of Russian trolls and misinformation. You alluded to it earlier in our show about the story from the New York Post. Uh, Giuliani is, ha, has just seemed to go, I mean, kind of off the deep end, but, but nothing, nothing has prepared us in, in all of the craziness around the Trump presidency and all of the, of, uh, of everything we've seen of Rudy Giuliani cozying up to Russians, nothing prepared me uh, for what we uh, are about to see in a film that is being released on Amazon Prime Video. And the film is Borat subsequent movie film, delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime for make benefit one's glorious nation of Kazakhstan. So in the movie, Borat, 
played by Sasha Baron Cohen, does all kinds of send-ups. And apparently in this film, which I haven't seen yet, Giuliani becomes the object of this, of this prank in the movie uh, in which uh, Giuliani and a young woman posing as a reporter, part of Cohen's sting, can be seen going into a hotel bedroom at the woman's invitation for drinks, completing what Giuliani apparently believed to be a real interview about the coronavirus pandemic and Trump's response to it. Uh, so he's 76 and he's on the bed and trying to remove his microphone. And apparently the reports of the film show Giuliani in a somewhat compromised position with his hand down his pants and this young actress who plays Borat's teenage daughter, who's actually Maria Bakalova, who's 24, pretending to be a television reporter standing in front of him. Borat, I can't wait to see this, breaks into the room. Uh, Cohen, Sasha Baron Cohen, as Borat shouting, she's 15, she's too old for you. And uh, Giuliani sits up, he's startled. Uh, Borat is wearing pink lingerie. Giuliani asks him, why are you dressed like that? And he responds, she's my daughter, please take me instead. I don't want you, Giuliani replies and leaves the suite. I mean, what kind of people this is, this is who President Trump has surrounded himself with. Giuliani is one of his chief advisors, one of the chief conduits of misinformation. Is, does any of this have an impact on the race? Are, do people, are people seeing the depth of the, of, of the just insanity uh, I can't think of a better word that is so pervasive in the Trump administration. And is it finally turning Republicans in large numbers away from him? In large numbers, no. Um, you know, I think people are very good at retroactive justification and um, fitting everything into their existing mental frameworks. And so if you happen to be a Trump supporter, you dismiss all of this as a left-wing hoax and, you know, the same way you you dismissed all of the things that led to Trump being impeached. But I mean, look, Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos. It sounds like I'm uh, listing the names of the world's most corrupt law firm, Michael Cohen, um, Brad Parscale now, his, uh, his departed uh, campaign manager. Every significant leader from his 2016 and now 2020 presidential campaign is under indictment or in prison. Think about that. Every single one. The only one actually who is not is Kellyanne Conway, um, which I guess it kudos to her. So no, I, I, I don't think that this is having a widespread effect. I think for the number, never Trump Republicans out there, um, you know, they're, they're sort of shaking their head and bemoaning what's happened to their party. I do think this sets up a very interesting challenge for Democrats. And you did see some of this begin to break this week on social media with people like former Labor Secretary Robert Reich um, calling for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission should Biden win. Uh, and that kind of approach to getting to 
the level of criminality that's taken hold in the Trump administration. Um, I can tell you as part of my uh, anecdotal um, uh, discussions with Republicans, they reacted pretty violently negatively to this. They see this as just as vindictive. Um, but look, I, I think that there is going to have to be some kind of a process with Trump having fired many of the inspectors general in our federal agencies. We do not know the depth of all of the corruption and criminality that's been going on in the federal government over the last four years. And it is critical that we unearth it. Um, and all of the evidence is from Giuliani on down and the list of names I just, I, I, I just read out, all of the evidence is that um, there's an awful lot of it going on. So no, no impact on the election, but big impact on what's to come next if everything goes well. So what do you make of Barack Obama's first in-person campaign uh, appearance on behalf of Joe Biden? He oh, no, I'm going to turn the question around on you, Paul. You were his national co-chair in 2008. You, you, you were an uh, FOB. What did you make of Barack Obama's speech? Well, look, I mean, I've... We, we've, we've, we've heard him speak uh, as president for four years. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him when he was campaigning in 2008. And, you know, he's cultivated an image and uh, his persona tends to be uh, so, somewhat cool. Um, he's tended to be cool in a number of ways. Number one, I think he's cool, but he's also tended to be kind of... Uh, the adult in the room, the, the cool, dispassionate, objective decider, the, um, the guy who could listen to multiple, multiple uh, different inputs and make a rational decision, um, who prided himself on kind of um, and being the smartest guy in the room, an intellectual approach. The speech that he gave in Philadelphia I thought was just scorched earth going after the president. I, it was as if he had been unleashed after four years of, of restraint. Um, I, was, I was surprised, uh, frankly, I was, I, I was pleased. I, I, think, I think we've got, this is a highly emotional time and a highly emotional campaign and to uh, have Obama speak with such passion, I think gives some permission to all of us to feel the feelings we've been feeling. Yeah, I mean, I was reminded forcefully of the key and peel of uh, Obama anger translator bit um, that uh, was uh, particularly brilliant um, several years ago. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that we've kind of gotten to a point where it's okay to channel that because look, all the stuff that's going on is not normal. It's not okay. And, you know, per your point about Rudy Giuliani and all of these other miscreants that are now in jail or awaiting trial or probably should be in jail. Um, and I don't want to sound like the other side. I don't want to sound like lock them up. I'm just stating a fact, right? Um, this is not normal. And uh, I think it's actually a good thing for Americans to feel kind of outraged about what's happening to our democracy, our country, our constitution. Um, and our system of government. And, um, you know, seeing someone like uh, Cerebral as Barack Obama pissed off, I think that's kind of a good thing. You know, I think he's channeling uh, what, what, we've all, what we've all been feeling. Um, when you, you see the yard signs, basically some of the yard signs just make him go away or, you know, please God, 
um, enough. Um, the, it's it, it's a very very emotional time. What what's interesting is, you know, you and I have talked um, over the past few weeks about this stable or somewhat stable appearing lead for the Biden Harris ticket. Um, at the same time, the Senate. Republican Judiciary Committee members um, have voted to send the Amy Coney Barrett nomination to the floor. She is going to be likely um, confirmed by Monday as the Supreme Court Justice to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, many people see this as a play by Donald Trump to um, work whatever nefarious machinations he can to send this election to a now uh, solid conservative majority Supreme Court, which he will hope will somehow find some, some chink, some leg to stand on should the election go against him. And all signs at the moment are that it's more likely than not that, that it will. Um, it's a it's a tough time to be an American right now. COVID deaths have spiraled upwards. The economy is um, not in good shape. We're struggling with dis and misinformation, and we've got uh, forces tearing at the very fabric of our democracy. So, what I say um, to to my listeners, to our listeners. Uh, with all of this, we can talk dispassionately about it, but um, choose courage, not fear. Choose possibility, not despair. Um, vote. We have a choice. It's up to us. We need to vote. Uh, if I was, um, if I was uh, Mayor Daley, I'd say vote early and vote often. We need to vote legally, legitimately, and get our ballots in. But we also uh, need to hope uh, with persistence and some optimism, and we need to choose hope um, because that's what has always uh, driven our country, and uh, there's no reason to let it go now. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, uh, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, we will be back after a short break for a very brief reference. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hose, produced by WKXL, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Matt Robeson, who writes for the Alternet and is the proprietor of the moreperfectunionforum.com, a terrific blog on politics, is co-hosting with me. We've had an interesting show, Matt, about disinformation, uh, misinformation, and the state of play in the presidential election. Uh, we have a, uh, I don't know, how many shows do we have before the election? We probably have next, next week is, show. is the last one before the election. And we have an interesting guest, so uh, people should make sure to tune in. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thanks to the sponsors of Keith WKXL on the air. Uh, feel free to visit nhtalkradio.com where our shows are archived. And we will be back next week 
with another edition of Off the Record.